welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a special guest, Kira Butler, a senior editor at Mother Jones Magazine. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour, Kira. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, about two years ago, you wrote an article on Mother Jones called The Terrifying Story of How QAnon Infiltrated Moms Groups. And I feel like that in the past year or so, this is still going on. And I've seen it on social media. And I wanted to talk about how this phenomenon has continued to evolve and how it exists. But can you give us a quick rundown of how this works? Yeah. So maybe I'll tell you just a little bit of background on that story that I wrote two years ago. So that was uh, toward the beginning of the pandemic. I noticed in the parents groups that I'm in on Facebook that their people began sharing things that had to do with the pandemic that didn't have to do with what most people usually post about on these groups. So I would notice that like somebody would be like, hey, can you recommend a car seat? And somebody else would respond in the comments about like linking to a conspiracy theory video about, you know, the origins of COVID. And I thought, this is really weird. So I talked to some disinformation researchers and they kind of turned me on to a trend that had been going on even before the pandemic, which had to do with anti-vaccine advocacy. So as Trump was elected, they began to notice more anti-vaccine presence in parents groups online. And it was different from what anti-vaccine advocacy used to look like. You know, this used to be thought of as mostly as a phenomenon of the left, like crunchy people who don't believe in putting toxins in your body. Maybe they live in Boulder, Colorado or um, Marin County, California, Portland, Oregon. Slowly, as the Trump administration began, there was a shift in the anti-vaccine movement. And instead of people kind of railing again these supposed toxins that were in vaccines, there was a new narrative that emerged and it had everything to do with bodily autonomy was a, a catchphrase that they used and freedom. So the idea was that uh, vaccines were tools of the government and that parents should fight against this and not subject their children to getting these you know, government mandated shots. And as you can imagine, when COVID happened and uh, mask mandates um, started to go into effect, and at the very beginning when there were some actual lockdowns, this narrative of freedom and of you know fighting against government tyranny really took off. And these groups, these anti-vaccine groups began to become COVID mandate groups as well. So you saw this kind of um, expansion of these anti-vaccine groups. I know this is a long way to get around to QAnon, but some of the central tenets of the QAnon conspiracy theory have to do with fighting against what its adherents believe is government overreach. And the idea that government is an elite and secretive group of people, you know, this notion of the deep state. So this really played right into those tropes um, that the anti-vaccine activists had originally embraced and that the expansion of these groups at the beginning of the pandemic. The other piece of this that made QAnon especially appealing to moms was this notion of ridding the world of pedophiles. And the pedophiles supposedly were all in cahoots with the government deep state. 
there were many different floridly insane um, theories that swirled around this idea of secret pedophiles. One of them that I wrote about and that uh, you're probably familiar with was the Save the Children thing, which uh, a little kind of tributary of that was this idea that Wayfair was trafficking children and that every time you ordered a throw pillow, a child was trafficked. Obviously, this is completely insane, but it really touched a nerve. You know, these and I think, you know, it's important to keep in mind that parents at the beginning of the pandemic, especially, were really scared. You know, this was unprecedented amounts of stress, amounts of, you know, social change of unrest. And the idea that um, children were being harmed was very powerful. You know, when you think about it like that, you can kind of see why uh, moms groups um, were a perfect kind of fertile ground for for QAnon. Yeah, we're having you on to talk to us about this because it's something you know about. And there's just so much to dive into and unpack about how we got here, what is here, you know, and what can we expect looking forward? And so you really deeply set the stage for that. I think something that we kind of are looking at now is is the question of, well, the question was asked, you know, at the beginning of 2021, with the election of Joe Biden, Q has stopped posting. There's not any Q drops. Like, what's going to happen to QAnon? But I feel like the influence is still there and the infrastructures and the groups that developed around this conspiracy theory are still there. And what is kind of alarming to me is that I'm in some of those Facebook moms groups, but I'm also in ones that are specifically for like progressive parents. And what progressive parents means, you know, in New York and Queens on Long Island is, is different than what it might mean in other, other parts of the country. But these are people who are specifically basically complain about right wing Republican groups. They complain about Long Island majority and about the Proud Boys. But then every once in a while, I'll see all these posts about beware of human trafficking. I don't let my kid walk home from school because of the traffickers. I saw someone looking at me weird in a Target parking lot because of the traffickers. And I'm just thinking, like, how did these progressive minded people with the, you know, rainbow bumper stickers and Black Lives Matter pins start to believe in these QAnon conspiracies? It's very confounding to me. Totally. That's a really interesting point. And I think it speaks to the power of these, of anxiety about children. It really speaks to the power of anxiety about children. I don't know how old you you guys are. You seem like you might be a little younger than me, but when I was young in the eighties, there was a big panic about kidnapping. Like all of the after-school specials were about kids who were kidnapped. And it wasn't, it was never like kidnapping by, you know, somebody that, that, that the family knew, which is no, statistically it was sa- the satanic panic. It was devil worshipers. <laughs> that, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, exactly. It was, it was devil worshipers. It was some shady stranger, usually somebody who was in a van and offered candy or something. And, you know, that. the kid got in and we were all, you know, in school, we were drilled about stranger danger. And we were sort of led to believe that there, that these people were everywhere, you know, just waiting to, um, to abduct us. And this is really the same idea, you know, this this powerful notion that there are shadowy forces out there that that are going to hurt kids. This has always captured the imaginations of parents. You know, 
even if you go back hundreds of years, there's often a, an anti-Semitic kind of a flavor to it. You know, the idea used to be that Jews would drink the blood of children. Bloodline. And the, yeah, blood libel. This was, and that's a theme in Q as well, this idea of adenochrome, which is uh, the blood of children, I guess. Adrenochrome is specifically the blood of terrified children. Right. Yes. So this is not new. Um, this is something that it's throughout the ages. You know, there, this narrative never really goes away. And the other part of this that makes it really a tricky thing to talk about is that sex trafficking is real. There really is sex trafficking out there. And it really is a problem, but it does not happen in the way that Q adherence and that even, you know, people who are kind of Q adjacent say that it does. I, I also wanted to make one more quick point. And this is something, so I monitor some just kind of anti-vax conspiracy minded accounts on Instagram. And I started noticing about maybe a month ago that there was this kind of bubbling up of panic around Disney. I don't know if you guys have been following this. I've been but, not following it, but I'm very aware of it still. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been kind of ethically challenged because I try not to engage with Disney media properties for their like labor practices. Oh, and yeah. what I see is they're like monopolistic tendencies over our culture. And I'm like kind of struggling, like, do I get Disney plus or not like to watch Moon Knight? And then as soon as I was like that, like about workers rights, I see that they're all like boycotting Disney because they came out against the don't, don't say gay bill. And I was like, well, where is the moral center here? You know, the the right. only ethical consumption of Disney products or anything at this point is to use somebody else's account to stream. <laughs> <laughs> Mother Jones, I'm sure does not endorse that. So you're <laughs> also for legal reasons, it, that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I have, as a parent, I have my own concerns about Disney. Like, I don't especially love Disney. But, you know, that aside, like, this is this current uproar about Disney among these kind of conspiracy folks on Instagram has to do with the, the Don't Say Gay Bill. So the, there are people who devote, like, entire, like, you know, Instagram stories with, like, 30 or 40 slides to pointing out what they say are child predator symbols in, in like, Disney movies. That's been um, around as an urban legend since I was a teenager. I remember oh, was that I right? was like alternative kid metalhead thing where you would like sit around and, and be a dirtbag kid and people would be like, you know, Disney really does all this, this like child sex stuff. I and kinda, you would I like remember. smile and nod and pretend that you saw it too. <laughs> That's really interesting. I, I do remember like from when I was a teenager, like there were supposedly hidden messages, like in the Little Mermaid, I think in particular. Yes. Why was it always the Little Mermaid? <laughs> I don't know. So this um, conspiracy theorist that I follow was posting about sexual predator symbolism in Disney films. And then she uh, mentioned that uh, Daniel Tiger and other PBS kids shows had this as well. And somebody in the comments asked her about it. And she said, oh, I'm going to explain in my reel. And then in her reel, she linked to this other woman who posts about screen time and about, you know, what kinds of shows are too overwhelming for kids or what kinds of shows 
encourage kids to learn and think and play versus shows that kind of, you know, have a hypnotizing deadening effect on kids. And this was not this like, woman like who she general linked, media literacy stuff. Correct. But yes, yeah, so this woman that that she linked to that she said, oh yes, Daniel Tiger's really bad too. The account that she linked to had nothing to do with QAnon or child predators or conspiracy theories. It was this was just, you know, a woman who was talking about screen time. So I think that there are these little portals where some of this Q and uh child predator, mm-hmm. this ideology can kind of get to more progressive audiences. I'm really fascinated with that answer because like I'm, I'm 39 and one of my earliest memories is watching Winnie the Pooh too smart for strangers, which I think I've discussed on Twitter and on the show many times. It's awful. Like it's on YouTube. You can watch it about like how it was a constant drumbeat into like little kids in the eighties heads, like pedophiles are coming for you. You got to be ready. You got to fight them off and everything. And the idea that these fears have always existed and that some percentage like tragically of children are abused um that this remains a cultural fear is an interesting idea and that does make it make sense but i i suppose like the answer to that is to talk about like what no one wants to admit that the biggest risks to your children are the people you know your family and your friends and i remember i said that to someone in one of these groups that like you know most of the people that are, are victimized by sex trafficking are like homeless queer teens and people with an abusive partner who coerces them into it, things like that. And the person most likely to kidnap your child is the non-custodial parent. And she just wrote back, are you sure that doesn't sound right? That sounds very naive. And I just thought, no, that's, that's correct. But the FBI statistics and it's like any other crime. It's, it's the people you know. And I Thinking about this in that framework, I think, gives me more empathy for these people. So so definitely thank you for that. Yeah, that's it's interesting that 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 your your reply to her struck her as naive, because I would say kind of the other way around, like, you know, the idea that there are shady strangers waiting at every turn um, and that they're the ones who are dangerous to kids. To me, that sounds a little naive. So I think that this kind of opens up a really kind of fascinating avenue for understanding how people get from point A to point B. I feel like we've talked a lot about point B, but I feel like we've really opened up talking about like how point A, like what is, where is the starting point and where is this coming from? And, you know, the idea, I think particularly the case of Jeffrey Epstein was terrifying to not just parents, but everybody and confirmed, you know, all of the pictures of him with government officials, with a president, with presidential candidates, with Hollywood celebrities. These are exactly the kinds of people who are being painted as traffickers. And so to to put all of the, like, how could you believe something so insane on parents is really kind of placing this kind of personal responsibility onto families that our systems have really damaged our trust in them in in a variety of ways. And then add on top of that, this huge existential threat of a virus that we cannot protect ourselves or our children from, children being in the house at all times without support for childcare, the exhaustion, the fear. 
I mean, it really creates a, a perfect scenario for people to feel vulnerable, desperate for easy solutions, desperate to understand what's going on and see through the mystery of it all so that they can take action to protect themselves and their families. I have so much empathy for the moms who find themselves in these positions because there's no support for so many families right now and there's no answers. That's, I think that you hit on just sort of the crux of this issue. Whenever I talk about conspiracy theories, particularly in mom's groups, I like to talk about uh, the lack of support that these women have, um, that these parents have. I think even before the pandemic began, we saw a lot of health misinformation and disinformation circulating in these groups. These groups were a big conduit for multi-level marketing companies mm -hmm. where, um, you know, I wrote about years ago, I wrote about, um, oh, there's an essential oils um, company called uh, doTERRA. And I talked to some moms who on social media had heard from other, from other doTERRA salespeople that doTERRA essential oils could cure autism. And here were these moms, this, the one mom that I talked to was, she was this young Mormon woman and she was like 18 or 19 when she had her kid, she was isolated. She did not have a lot of money and her kid was autistic. And she was basically told that essential oils could cure her son's autism. And when you think about the kind of desperation you know, that somebody like this has, it kind of snaps into focus. It's not, you know, here's a stupid person who is so gullible. It's like, this is a desperate person who really didn't have any support. And so the idea, this kind of magical thinking, you know, that there was a cure for this, this thing that her family struggled with so much was very appealing to her. And I think, you know, we see the same kinds of things with the pandemic and with, you know, the kind of slow creep into the queue stuff as well. You know, we see parents who, uh, as you were saying, Karen, are really not supported, who are really at, at their wits end. You know, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, the kids were home all the time. You see how this can happen. You know, I think when, you know, when we talk about combating disinformation online, you know, a lot of people are talking about, oh, well, you know, Facebook needs to fact check everything and, Twitter needs to kick people off and stuff like that. And I think, yes, of course, these social media platforms should be held accountable. But, you know, if we had paid family leave, if we if we had, you know, affordable childcare, then parents would not be in the position where they're so desperate that they're willing to latch on to these theories and to find community, really, in these groups of conspiracy theorists. And I think it also speaks to much of the conspiracy that is around Q and Q adjacent is hyper-partisan and serves political ends for people who are currently in power and people who have openly in Congress and the Senate made references or, you know, a former president who has made references to that are supportive of misinformation, disinformation. And we know that there is also foreign government involvement in disinformation campaigns on social media. And so 
those are also specifically people who want to prevent the provision of those services in more equitable fashions for their reasons, which, you know, I personally disagree with. But um, it is really fascinating to see this as a single party issue that promotes this kind of rhetoric that is, is they're aware, I'm sure, is pure fantasy. And so the, the bad faith support of this in mainstream political media is a really disturbing trend and, and does make it quite a bit more difficult to say, oh, well, if only Facebook had better moderation tools so that people who run these parent groups weren't spending hours deleting links to YouTubes that are questionable or QAnon pipelines, it goes beyond private corporate spaces. And, and at this point has spread to a more critical mass of becoming a public kind of conspiracy partnership, <laughs> you know? I think that's exactly right. And I don't think it's possible to overstate the whack-a-mole nature of this stuff. Like Facebook can label and ban and uh, Instagram can shadow ban people, but they always, always find ways to come back. I wrote about, I wrote uh, a story not so long ago about Instagram influencers who were spreading anti-vaccine and Q stuff. And uh, the night before my story published, I sent a list of questions to one because I wanted to give her a chance to respond. And she blocked me and changed her account and developed a backup account. Some of these anti-vaccine folks on Instagram who have been banned have four or five backup accounts, or they'll, you know, they'll, um, their actual posts will all be about like, I don't know, they're like homeopathic remedies or something. And then their stories will have all of like the, the good stuff. Um, or they'll, they'll be talking about, you know, Q stuff or vaccine stuff. And they'll have a sticker on their story that's like a get vaccinated sticker. So it's they're hoping to kind of evade the censors that way. You know, all of this just to say that the notion that you can get rid of disinformation just by just through like moderation of these platforms is very naive. And the, the problem, as you said, Karen, is much deeper. Well, there is research that shows that after Twitter banned high follower count Q accounts, that there was a significant drop in links shared. So even though you can't uh, eradicate it, you know, I feel like we're talking about COVID, you know, <laughs> you can slow the spread. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, that's, that's a great point. And it, it you know, I don't mean to give Facebook and Twitter a free pass by saying this. You know, of course, we have to hold those those platforms accountable as well. It's just that's not going to fix the structural issues that make pe people vulnerable to this in the first place. Exactly. And so, I think uh, that both sides of that are really important messages that like, yes, there is a responsibility to do something. And then there's also a responsibility that goes beyond just social media companies. I'm really thinking about this, about how uh, certain progressive people pushing certain policies might 
start to rethink the way they think about um, people who believe these things as rather than like the enemy or be, people being silly as, as an opportunity. Because I remember a conversation that was being had in one of these groups where some people were saying, but if it's not true, what's the harm in sharing it anyway? Because it might be, and then people will be more careful. And people were saying, well, because when you believe that there's, you know, traffickers in every target parking lot, you're going to become more suspicious, more xenophobic, more racist, more likely to not trust your neighbors, less likely to build community and, and, and less open to like kind of creating what we want. And you're more likely to fall for fascism, like quite frankly, like even we're in this progressive group, it's, it's not a good state of mind to be in. But like, I wonder how many people who are in that state of mind would be open to someone saying like, hey, we should have paid family leave. Hey, we should have universal 3K. Hey, we need to raise the minimum wage. Hey, we need um, more protections for workers who are unionizing. Or if when you're so scared, you can't think of like on a policy level, I'm not sure, but it, it seems like an opportunity. Research on executive function shows that extended exposure to stress reduces your ability to, and executive function is, I'm sorry, I can't help but go into jargon, your your ability to really think deeply or critically or reflectively, your ability to focus is executive functioning. So all these skills that you use to navigate your environment are, are best when you have minimal stress in your daily life. So being constantly terrified absolutely reduces this. And we know uh, that during this pandemic, there have been the stress, baseline stress on a day-to-day experience for Americans has gotten to the point where it would interfere with people's ability to, to access like the higher functioning of thinking. That's really interesting. I had never, I had never heard that the research on executive function pulled in that way, but it makes sense. Well, I'm not necessarily connecting it to QAnon spread, but I am saying if somebody were to say, well, what's wrong with being more cautious? Well, there's a lot wrong with being cautious when there's no threat. It's good to be cautious when there is a threat, but being overly cautious, I mean, that's basically the the definition of a lot of psychiatric symptoms for disorders is being on alert without a threat. We see this a lot. Like this is a this is a tactic that Trump used in the lead up to getting elected, right? That he he said, you know, there are gangs and we need to, you know, keep these immigrants out of our country because they're very dangerous and they're, you know, committing violent crimes. This is a very powerful Fear is a very powerful emotion to tap into. And, you know, Trump definitely understood that. And for our NYC listeners, you know, we see this happening right now with Eric Adams and police funding. There's so much reporting on violent crime, which is actually quite low. And we've had a a slight uptick since the pandemic, but not back to prior levels. And so it's a really effective tactic to push unpopular uh, or formerly unpopular political will. Schools are another target of of these groups. Um, The idea that kids are not safe at school, whether that's because of, you know, 
gang violence, supposed gang violence, or, uh, you know, more recently what we've seen is curriculum and that that is supposedly making kids unsafe. You know, first we saw it with the critical race theory stuff, and now we're seeing it with the don't say gay bill and this kind of panic about talking about gender identity um, in in elementary school. And, you know, I think a lot of the messaging around that has to do with uh, making parents think that their kids are not safe in public school. And honestly, the ultimate goal of a lot of these people, and we saw we saw this sort of the beginnings of this with Betsy DeVos, uh, the secretary of um, education under Trump. The idea is to undermine public schools as, as we know them in the United States. Exactly. And particularly Betsy DeVos's connection to charter schools and funneling public money into private schooling, which is under less oversight than public schools. And, and actually, you know, from a, a parent perspective, potentially has the potential to be less safe because of a lack of regulation. The most perverse thing about that is that they'll never, this is way off topic, but they'll never talk about, you know, gun violence in schools which is actually the thing that I personally worry about. But I definitely think that that this issue is framed a little bit more clearly for me anyway. I'm really curious to hear about, for example, you know, on a platform like Instagram, what's your experience in kind of what makes these visual or, you know, we know with social media companies, they, they kind of a, intend to gamify their platforms in order to encourage further engagement and delay disengagement. I'm wondering kind of the way that particularly in mom's groups, the posts from people who are trying to influence people towards their belief in QAnon or QAnon adjacent concepts, you know, have you noticed what they're kind of using besides kind of the holistic stuff and and the kind of classic grift of like my essential oil is the cure to disease that there is no cure for besides that kind of classic grift I'm curious more about the ways that the medium is is utilized and in promoting these ideas so like visual for Instagram or interpersonal on Facebook yeah it's interesting you know in the, the Facebook groups that I looked at, I did not, I mean, I'm sure that there are, you know, Q people out there in, in mom's groups, like Q influencers out there. But what I saw was more like what Elizabeth was talking about, like, you know, people in the comments um, just kind of drawing in Q ideas or maybe, you know, somebody linking to the pandemic video and saying, hey, what do you guys think about this? Like it almost or, you know, somebody spreading the um, Wayfair's traffic trafficking children with throw pillows idea. These were things that these folks had heard just somewhere out there and were kind of, you know, trying to warn the fellow moms about. These were not like Q influencers with hundreds of thousands of followers. On Instagram, I do follow some of those influencers. And I have found recently that the stories, like I was saying before, the stories on Instagram are uh, where most of this is happening. A, because it's ephemeral content, so it's much harder uh, for the platform to moderate it. But also something that I noticed recently is that you can add onto stories forever. So, you know, a, 
a thing about these conspiracy theories is that you can always fold in the latest headlines as you know, supposed evidence of um, you know the grand narrative. And so I noticed that there were people who had started out maybe a year or more ago talking about vaccines or talking about child trafficking. And then like in late February, when Russia invaded Ukraine, they began adding to their stories and folding in this idea of Putin ridding Ukraine of pedophiles. Like, and it just, if you watched it all at once, like I did, then it was like, one grand, very neatly tied together with a bow kind of narrative. Yes. And of course, we know that a lot of the foreign influence on disinformation on social media was specifically Russian in that, you know, Russia today specifically like publishing on it. So it's not hidden. We know that that Russia is also very involved in the spread of QAnon disinformation, particularly. So that's, it's not surprising that suddenly uh, Russia's interests are folded in. So is there is there anything you want to add about how potentially listeners can discern between legitimate concerns for children's safety that they see on social media or in their mom's groups? And kind of a, is there a quick way to identify like, this sounds really off. <laughs> The simplest strategy that I have seen that works in the most situations in social media groups is asking for somebody's source. You know, if if somebody is talking about the traffickers that wait in every Target parking lot, you know, you can write back and say, "That sounds scary. Can you tell me where you where you found that information?" And that usually, you know, maybe they'll write back or maybe they won't. If they do write back, then that will probably give you a clue as to whether or not it's trustworthy. I did that a lot just during the pandemic about, especially during the first part of the pandemic about stuff that people were saying about COVID. Like, you know, there was just so much information during those first few months um, and it wasn't always reliable. And I asked for sources a lot and I found it clarifying. We had um, Lindsay Beierstein on the show to talk about this issue and how it related to the like pro-life terrorist movement and she recommended a dapper gander like a like a dapper goose uh is is a a creator on twitter and on patreon who kind of does deep dives on QAnon. and reading that information has made me understand that it's not just like a guy on 4chan like playing dress up and people believing him that QAnon has become a conspiracy theory that envelops and like it snowballs all the other conspiracy theories into it mm-hmm. and it sucks in the sucks them up and it like incorporates every conspiracy theory you've ever heard on into heard of into one grand narrative and i think if you do a little bit reading into say the idea of like the q clock or that map of the world and all the organizations and how they interrelate and once you kind of understand that this is an all-encompassing idea, it kind of becomes easier to understand how these people are thinking because they see everything as related, but not in the way that I might see everything as being interrelated. They see everything as being interrelated through this lens. Um, And I think once you internalize that, it becomes easier to spot Q stuff. That's just my personal experience, but not everybody has the time for that. this took me a while to like really understand 
this is actually one of the, the things that came to mind, uh, Kira, while you mentioned asking for sources. I have been on Twitter where I have had like just read threads where people asked for sources and a source was posted in a response. And I was like, oh, there's a source. And then I've seen the follow-up comment, which is like, this source says nothing about what you said, or like this source says exactly the opposite. So I do really want to encourage if you do ask someone for their source and their source sucks, write that in a response comment because most people are not going to actually click through. <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, that's the Epic Times and that paper is garbage. Like, yeah, you, you also have to be familiar with sources. Yeah. And I think definitely some basic social media and classic media literacy might also be a way that something like Facebook or Twitter, or Instagram or Google might be able to, to help people understand what are sources that are, that tend to be considered legitimate in the U S what are ones that tend to be considered? I mean, you might not be able to say propaganda without it being extremely political for a private company, but you might say more of a tabloid, uh, which I think would give people the idea that not everything is vetted in the same way or fact-checked in the same way. And this is, this is sort of a tangent, but it made me think of just sort of statistically, a lot of people who believe in spread conspiracy theories are not parents of young children, but, but older adults, um, people in their sixties and seventies. How shall I say this with the older adults in my life? I notice, um, even though their politics, uh, usually align with mine, I notice a lot of lack of media literacy, you know, spreading of, you know, memes or articles that they come across online that, you know, just not reliable. And I think, you know, media literacy can be harder for that generation because they, you know, they didn't grow up with it the same way that um, younger generations have. So it's just another challenge. Yeah, we we all got exposed to trolling early. <laughs> I think if your entry into online spaces is Facebook, you may not have learned as much about trolling as somebody That's right. who, you know, came up on the early internet. <laughs> Was there anything else that you you really wanted to add? I don't think so. This has been such a fun conversation. Yeah, it's been so great having you on. And I really love the way that you kind of capture the the kind of gestalt of what's happening and are also able to speak to the the nuance of how it happens and like on like the daily basis of how this information is being spread and and so that it's been really really great talking to you about it you two are very clearly um really knowledgeable about this stuff so it's always interesting and rewarding to have conversations with other people who follow this and who care about it so thanks so much for having me on Thank you for complimenting me for being extremely online. <laughs> Where can people find your uh, your work on the on the internet, Kira? Oh, I'm at motherjones.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Kira Eve Butler. That's about it. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. 
tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.